0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now let me ask, have you ever been at some point, something, somewhere where you knew history was taking place? History was unfolding before your very eyes, and you know you didn't want to miss it. Have you ever had an experience like that? Here's, here's one for me. So this was in on February 1st, 1998. I have a picture on the screen here. February 1st, 1998, the University of South Carolina Gamecocks were taking on the number 18 Cincinnati Bearcats. Now, South Carolina's athletic legacy, it is what it is, and so we relished this one time we beat a number 18, you know, barely top 20 team. I recognize that. But my dad and my older brother were at this game, we were in Columbia at the Carolina Coliseum to watch the Eddie Fogler Coach Gamecocks take on Cincinnati. And my family, we only ever went to games where we were going to either kill or be killed, right? We never went to the kind of the, the contested middle ground games. It was always we're going to get killed, so we can afford the tickets, so we're going to go to that game. So my dad and my brother were there, you know, fully expecting that we were going to get smoked by Cincinnati. This particular instance. The Gamecocks were down as much as 23 points during that game, but they came roaring back. And with the final four seconds, they they didn't have the lead once this game. The final four seconds, they're down two points. Antonio Grant inbounds the ball to B.J. Mackey, Gamecock legend B.J. Mackey. Instantly, the defense swarms on B.J. Mackey. He trips, barely gets a pass off, gets the ball back to Antonio Grant. He shoots a prayer of a three-pointer and absolutely crushes it and my dad and that's the first time they lead during that whole game as they as they score the buzzer beater three point basket to win the game. And my dad and my brother who are the two most even kill people in the world. Both of them went absolutely bonkers with the rest of the 50,000 people that were present there at that particular basketball game. It was unbelievable. And people still talk about the shot in reference to this one time unranked South Carolina beat number 18 Cincinnati. They call it the shot. You know, it's gone down as Gamecock lore alongside, you know, when Bruce Ellington uh, 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 scored the, the game-winning touchdown against Michigan alongside the time that DJ Swearinger knocked Andre Ellington down and flexed on him, South Carolina fans, you remember that? It goes down along Gamecock, alongside Gamecock lore like when Jadavion Clowney hit the running back from Michigan and decapitated the guy. One of those unbelievable moments. And, and every time somebody mentions it, I get to say, I was there. I was there for that game. I was there for the shot. Have you ever been somewhere where history was unfolding and you knew what was taking place and you didn't want to miss it? Now we are in part three of the book of Acts where we have been seeing how the gospel has been going forward since Christ ascended into the heavenly places and sends his spirit to commission out his church. Last week began part three of this study where we saw for the very first time Christians are intentionally undertaking a missionary journey. They commission Paul and Barnabas out from the church at Antioch and begin sharing the gospel. In our passage today, what we have is the very first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. And essentially what Paul is telling these people, his hearers, is this. History is happening. History is unfolding Right before your very eyes, history is taking place. You don't want to miss what God is doing in Jesus. And I think we could summarize Paul's sermon with these three exhortations that are present in this passage. Listen, know, and beware. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Let's read together. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, one of the things that's helpful to do when you read through narratives like this in the scriptures is to actually take a look at a map. We'll have one on the screen for us. It helps us remember that these aren't just religious tales, like in the genre of Aesop's fables or, or Zeus or Hercules or whatever. These are historical places that took place on real historical events. And what Luke tells us here is that in Acts chapter 13, uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 13, the Antioch that's underlined on the screen, Paul and Barnabas set sail from Antioch. They go to the island of Cyprus. They begin doing ministry in Salamis and Paphos. And then in our passage, it tells us they actually leave Paphos and go north up to Perga, the city, the port city of Perga, in the region of Pamphylia. And they ultimately go as far north as this other Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, where they settle down and begin to do some ministry. Verse 14 tells us that in Pisidian Antioch, On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, sometimes it can be really confusing when you you read through these stories because you have places that are named similarly. So, for instance, chapter 13 begins in Syrian Antioch, which Luke just calls Antioch. In this passage, they're in Pisidian Antioch, which, again, Luke just calls Antioch in Pisidia. Apparently, there was a, an ancient Greek hero named Antarchus, Antiarchus, something along those lines, that went around establishing cities and named them after himself. Right, so this is one of those instances. They're in different Antiochs. Then on the Sabbath day, Saturday, they sit down to join in worship at a Jewish synagogue. Now, a synagogue was a place of Jewish worship. They, they still remain as today, a place where Jews and God-fearers, that is, non-ethnically Jews who, who are adherents to Judaism, where they go and attend for worship. It's kind of like a a temple stand-in for those who are in the diaspora, those who are exiled all over the region, Jews that are spread out all over the place who aren't in the Holy Land. Synagogues were this kind of stand-in temple, and they functioned like civic centers for these displaced Jews. You'd have your, the center of your schooling took place at the synagogue, you'd have your potlucks and your bingo, you'd watch Carolina basketball at the synagogue, for instance, if that were a thing, you know. And each Sabbath, they'd have songs, they'd have a reading from the scriptures, the Law and the Prophets. And they would often have someone come and expound on the scriptures. They'd have somebody teach on the scriptures. And so, if you're Paul the Apostle and Barnabas, and you've been sent on this journey to announce the reign of the Jewish Messiah, it seems like a pretty natural place to go, right? You go to the synagogue and you'd say, Hey, we're here to talk about God's promises to our fathers long ago. I have some news for you. God's promises have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, Christ is the Messiah. So they go to the synagogues and they tell them that the Messiah is here. Christ has come. So this is a, a normal day of synagogue worship until one of the leaders of the synagogue sends word to Paul and invites him to share a word of encouragement with the rest of those gathered, which is just love. You ever done something or asked somebody to do something and it was not at all what you bargained for? right? That's kind of what I imagine happening here. They said, Paul, would you like to share a word with the, uh, with the synagogue? You're, you're a Jewish brother, you're traveling, we hear that you've got some things to share about some of the things you've seen. Would you like to have a word? I can imagine Paul like cracking his neck and cracking his knuckles, you know, boy would I ever like to share. Verse 16, so Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So much like other sermons that we've seen in the book of Acts, Paul begins by giving us kind of a, a, a recap of what God has done in the history of the people of Israel. He offers an overview of the story of the Jewish people as told in the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly places like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the historical books, Joshua, Judges, First and 2 Kings, and the like. But one major difference between what Paul is doing here and what, say, Stephen did in the previous sermon in the book of Acts Stephen was highlighting the pattern of God's people to reject the leaders that God gives them. What Paul is emphasizing here is God's mercy to provide for his people. Look again at that section we just read. God chose them. God made them great. With uplifted arm, God led them out of Egypt. God gives them land. He gives them judges. He's even gracious enough to give them a king when they ask for one. And then it climaxes here with the giving of this figure. Verse 22. He raised up David to be their king. Raised up David, which is an interesting word choice. Maybe that'll play later in. King David is the king of the people of Israel. Imperfect, yes, but he's sort of the king par excellence for these people. It's clear that he's great. He is the exemplary king. He was after God's heart. It's kind of like your favorite sports team. Anytime you have a legendary figure, every other player that plays that position, you're wondering, is he the next? Phil, is, is he the next? Genevion Clowney? Is he the next B.J. Mackey? Is he the next Trevor Lawrence? Is he the next fill in the blank? David is the figure in that blank for Israel. Every king was compared to King David. Is this guy the next King David? Could we have the return of the legendary King David? The gold standard of a leader for the people of Israel. But more than that, God actually promises that David would be given an offspring who would not just sort of fill his giant shoes, but would actually expand and be better and be greater. Let's take a look at chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Have it on the screen for us. This is what God tells King David and David's lifetime through the prophet Nathan. This is what God promises. We'll look at verses 12, 13, and verse 16. To King David, the Lord says, When your days are fulfilled... And you would lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. Again, it's interesting that it says raise up your offspring. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How many times does the Lord say forever in that passage? He is going to permanently install one of David's descendants on the throne. And he's going to give him an everlasting kingdom. And he's going to be an everlasting ruler who's going to to reign and, and rule on God's behalf unlike any king that has ever preceded him. I will raise up your offspring from your very body, your descendant. I will establish your kingdom and your throne. And so understandably, the people of Israel are waiting for this guy. All right, you've made this promise to David. David was a legend, and he was the, the, kind of the, the ideal king. You've made this promise to him. God, when are you going to deliver on this promise? And Paul, you can kind of see where Paul's going with this. And he's, he's chomping at the bit to make this announcement. Listen, verse 23. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. That second Samuel chapter 7 offspring, that kingdom, that son, that descendant, he's come. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. The story isn't long dead. It is being fulfilled now, in our generation, in our time, Paul says, God is acting. This is Exodus-level stuff. Like, remember Prince of Egypt? This is even better and greater than that. History is happening right now. He's come. The son of David has come, and his name is Jesus. Verse 24, Paul continues. He says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, "'What do you suppose that I am?' "'I am not he.' "'No, but behold, after me one is coming, "'the sandals of of whose feet I am not worthy to untie.'" He says, "'John the Baptist anticipated him. "'Even John saw Jesus and regarded him as the Messiah.'" It's, it's probable that the, the legend of John the Baptist had traveled as far north as Pisidian Antioch, and it's, apparently he had some credibility in their eyes, and John the Baptist said, or, or Paul said, rather, "Even John the Baptist understood that Jesus of Nazareth is the one, the one that we've been waiting on." Verse 26: "Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, listen to us has been sent this message of salvation." For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul says, listen, to us has been sent the message of salvation. He was rejected by those who should have seen him coming. I love that. He says, they read about him every single Saturday, and yet they killed him, and thus fulfilled the very stories they read. Huh. Isn't that incredible? He said, they read about him every single Saturday. Every time that they were in the Sabbath worshiping at the synagogue, they read about this guy, and when he appeared, they put him to death, and thus fulfilled the stories they read. In their killing, they fulfill the stories that they read week after week after week. They killed the one who was bringing salvation. But Watch this, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. It's interesting, the word raise him here. But that would be his word choice. God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are present tense as we speak, now his witnesses to the people. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and his followers who were there for all of that, as we speak, are doing ministry in Jerusalem, Paul says. And listen, we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Paul then goes on to quote several scriptures. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, David is a pile of bones in a tomb somewhere. Even though God made this promise, David is a pile of bones in a tomb. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus was put to death, but Jesus is not dead. And for the, the apostles and for Paul, Jesus' resurrection is the key to everything. It's amazing how, how central of a feature Jesus' resurrection actually is in the book of Acts. It's like the thing that casts a shat, like, but a good shadow all over the book of Acts is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is not dead. I mean, for us who, who, many of us who have grown up in and around Christianity and who have grown up in the South and who have done banana pudding at Nana's every Sunday since before we can even remember, and and every Sunday we sing that, every Easter Sunday we sing that Jesus isn't dead, that Jesus is alive. It's a part of the, the the Bible verses we memorize. It's a part of maybe we grew up in a tradition where we memorize the creed and we say it and we say it and we say it. But have you really considered Jesus? Isn't dead. People don't just rise from the dead, but this one did. And the scriptures say that because he's risen from the dead, he has fulfilled every promise that God made to the people of Israel. And he is installed over kings of all nations, of all peoples, everywhere. And all people owe their allegiance to King Jesus. Paul says that this is the clear indication that he is the Messiah. That throne that was going to be established forever, God has done it with a guy who can't die. is that amazing? Paul says David served his purpose, but he's dirt now. But Jesus is raised up. He cannot decay. He does not see corruption. He exists on the other side of death forever. And what sets Jesus apart is the fact that he is now reigning, present tense, alive. The resurrection proves that the check cleared and that God has indeed install Jesus as king. And you, and you got to know, we, we remember back in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus himself interrupts Paul on his way to persecute Christians. And it's like, this guy has got to be, he's got to be burning in his bones. Like, I saw Jesus. We made eye contact, and Jesus told me to come do this, right? He's just got to be absolutely burning up with this. He is, he is now risen and enthroned. And so he says, listen, the promised Savior King is here. Verse 23, God has brought us a Savior, Jesus. Verse 26, to us has been sent the message of salvation. Verse 32, good news. What God has promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled by raising Jesus. Listen, the promised Savior King is here. He's done it. History is happening. He's done it in Christ. Then a second exhortation, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. No, he says. There's forgiveness of sins. This would have been a really deep sore spot for Jews who are exiled in the diaspora. Their sin is the reason they're in the diaspora. But he's saying now God is redeeming his people. He is forgiving their iniquities. He's forgiving their sin and he is bringing them back to himself. The sin that separates God from his people, God has addressed forever in Jesus. He forgives, Paul says. But then he says that in Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which the law couldn't free you. Jesus offers freedom, Paul says, but what does he mean that everyone who believes is freed from that which the law could not give you freedom from? If you know anything about Judaism... You know that a central piece of their identity was adherence to the law. God gave them this good law that they were called to obey, a standard that they were, they were called to abide by. But again and again and again, we see that they fail to you know, hold up to the standard. It's true for us as well. I mean, what happens anytime you try and obey a standard? Anytime. Maybe you have some good days, but most often you carry a deep awareness of how you don't meet the standard, right? And how often you don't want to meet the standard. That's the reality for each of us. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He says, the law came to increase the trespass. The law came to increase the trespass. You see a sign that says, don't touch the grass. What do you have to do now? You've got to touch the grass. You hear somebody say, don't think about the purple cup. Purple cup, it's in everybody's head, right? It exposes the reality of sin in our hearts like warm milk to a tapeworm, right? just draws it out. The point is that the law condemns us. The law can't save us. The law only exposes us. I remember almost 20 years ago when Emily and I, my wife, were just starting to hang out. She denies that this ever took place, but it did. I was deeply wounded by it, so I remember that it took place. Um, I was playing drums for this ministry at North Greenville called BSU. It was like a Thursday night ministry thing and uh, you'd have worship and some teaching, and I was a part of the, the BSU band, and so I was playing drums, and I had this girl that I was kind of interested in. I invited her to come, and boy, you better believe, I played my heart out that night. I was just beating the mess out of those things. I was playing like you wouldn't believe I could play. Just, just, I had to impress Emily with my drum playing skills, and afterwards, she was like, oh, man, you guys did so great. The band sounded so good. Man, you're so good at playing drums, and you know, I feel, I'm puffed up, and I feel you know 500 feet tall at that point. A couple of weeks later, We've gotten a little bit more serious as we've been dating, and we go to this other sort of ministry thing that was happening in Greenville in downtown Greenville. And I happen—it's—it's it's one of those things where you have music and teaching. We're on our way to that thing with Emily and some of her friends, and I happen to hear Emily say to one of her friends, "Oh, we're—we're we're gonna go. Is that band gonna play? Oh, remember that guy's our favorite drummer. That guy—I wasn't the guy that she. It was a different band. That guy's our favorite drummer. She whispered it to her friend." And we had seen this guy play before. Listen, we had seen this guy play before, and I knew, I I knew I didn't hold up a candle to this guy. I mean, he had the hair, he had the looks, he had the pants, he had the deep V-neck, which was really popular at that time, (laughs) around 2008. He had it all. And I knew, I mean, this guy was infinitely better, you know, exponentially better at playing drums than I was. And she said, there goes our favorite drummer. I brought it up a couple of weeks ago, because I was thinking about this passage, and I said, Emily, do you remember when this happened? And she's like, no, that did not happen. Of course, I didn't forget because of how deeply wounded I was. (laughs) Now, here's the reality, and maybe this has happened to you before. Anytime you fancy yourself to be good at something, and you get around somebody who's actually good at that thing, what do you feel instantly? Condemnation. You feel condemnation. And what Paul says is the law is a standard, that when, when, when we compare ourselves to the standard, the only conclusion that we can draw is I stand condemned. I am very small and I'm very unrighteous in comparison with this standard. The Torah as the standard of goodness only only serves to expose the reality of our fallenness. But Paul says, listen, in Jesus, we are freed from that condemnation. We have something the law could never give us. Jesus offers us by grace, right standing with God. Let's look at the rest of that Romans chapter 5 verse. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Listen, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He says, listen, the promised Savior King is here, and no, brothers, let it be known to you. Jesus offers forgiveness and freedom. He's come to restore us to God, and it is the, the best news that we can imagine. That Jesus has come to eliminate the barrier that stands between God and his people. But finally, Paul says, his last exhortation in verse 40, beware. Verse 40, beware. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Here he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Quoting Habakkuk 1, he's talking about an instance where God's people are being judged for their rebelliousness, and there's people who sort of scoff at that, don't believe it's actually going to happen, and lo and behold, God does indeed come and bring judgment. And Paul says, the promised Savior King is here. He offers freedom and he offers forgiveness, but it's possible that you could miss the boat. And it's possible that, like your brothers in Jerusalem, you could miss out on what, what God is doing, history that is taking place right now. You could reject the message and thus, like your cousins, fulfill this prophecy. Don't miss what God is doing. Listen, the promised Savior King is here. No, Jesus offers forgiveness and freedom, and beware. Don't miss what God has done in Jesus. In verse 42, this is the best part. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. It's like every preacher's dream. We would like more, please. They, they might be told him the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas continued teaching and explaining, urging them to continue in the grace of God, to keep on looking to Christ and seeing if Christ is not the one that the scriptures foretell. Of course, we'll see next week how the rest of this story plays out for us. But I just wonder, could we turn Paul's words to us today? Paul's words to us today. Listen, to us has been sent the message of salvation. Jesus isn't dead. He's the king of all nations, not just the Jews. He's the judge of the earth. And we are here today by the Lord's grace hearing this news. I, I can't help but just think how providential it is that the souls that are in this room right now are the souls that Jesus put in this room right now. Jesus is the promised Savior King. The one promised us of old. Listen and hear the message of salvation we have in Christ. And know, look at the certainty of that word, know. He offers forgiveness and freedom to you and to everyone. You know, it seems like all, for all of us, maybe I'm projecting my issues on y'all, but there's this kind of white noise, static of anxiety behind everything all the time. And you, you know what I wonder? I wonder if it's just guilt. It's just the steady static of guilt, like a mild despair, because we are exposed and we feel it and we know it. We know that we can't do enough to shake it. We cannot be righteous enough. We cannot be righteous enough. Even if we tried... Even if we had a million years and the best teaching and training, we could not be righteous enough. We could not make ourselves right before God. We could not be alert enough to systemic injustice. We could not do enough social justice. We cannot vote ourselves out of this. We cannot be pro-life enough. We cannot become enlightened enough or educated enough. We cannot retweet enough our way out of this. We cannot be generous enough. We cannot be hospitable enough. We cannot be sexually pure enough or theologically sound enough. We can do nothing, and we know it, and we know we are exposed. And our only hope is that the resurrected Savior King is a king who offers pardon. And Paul says, know this, that's exactly who Jesus is. You deserve condemnation, Jesus says, but I don't give it. I take it. I bear it for my people. And I love how Paul goes really specific and really broad. Look at verse 38 and verse 39 again. Let it be known to you, brothers. Let it be known to you. To you. Let it be known to you that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. To you and to everyone, here and now, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, all y'all, here, now. And every soul who believes, black, white, rich, poor, healthy, sick, every soul who believes is freed and made righteous, period. So beware. Beware. Because we could miss the message. You know that South Carolina basketball game I mentioned a minute ago? This is another one of those sore memories for me. You know why it sticks out to me? Yeah, because it's the it's the shot Gamecock Legends basketball. With 4 seconds left, there were 100,000 eyeballs locked in that moment. 100,000 minus 2. Because just as the ball was being inbounded with 4 seconds left, 10-year-old me dropped a skittle. <laughs> True story. I bend down to pick up the skittle. Antonio Grant makes a shot. The place erupts. And I, I, what happened? (laughs) I missed it. You know, the reality is in Upstate South Carolina that we could be exposed to these truths a million times, over and over and over again, and still miss it. Maybe you've heard this a million times, and every every single time you've heard it, it bounces right off. You're like Christian adjacent or something. You've been in and out and around church your whole life. Maybe you walked an aisle at VBS as a kid, but there is no real belief, there's no real discipleship, no real heart change to speak of. And could it be that you were here this morning and you were being called to believe and not miss it? Could you see the Lord's grace in this divine appointment? Not talking about going to church or being in church, but believing on the living, breathing, resurrected, reigning Jesus. Being in church makes you a Christian like being in a garage makes you a car. Could this be the day that the Lord is calling you to himself? Listen, know, and beware. Believe. The reality is every one of us has an expiration date. and Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed once for a man to die. Each of us will die, and our options are to stand exposed on our own or to stand in the rock who is Jesus, who is righteous for you. And the way that we access that forgiveness is not by doing good deeds. Remember, we're up the creek on that one. It's about receiving the pardon that he offers to us through belief. That's it. And so our prayer this morning would, would just be that you hear Paul's words fresh today. Listen, know, and beware. Take heed, friends. Lest we fulfill the words that were spoken about us. The next few minutes, I'm going to pray and the band is going to come lead us in another song. We always like, before we sing, we always like to have just a little bit of time to reflect. And if any of the things this morning that you have heard stir something in you, you feel like the Lord might be doing something, I would love to talk with you. Aaron, our other pastors, would love to talk with you. The person who brought you this morning would love to talk with you. I'll be out in the lobby here after worship. we would love to speak if you have any questions. I'm going to pray. Uh, The band is going to play and give us a little bit of time to reflect and then we'll stand and sing one last song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we come to you with gratitude in our hearts for being the pardon offering, condemnation-bearing king that you are. And Lord Jesus, we pray for a deeper sense of the reality of your resurrection. And we pray that you would give us a, an attentiveness to the things that Paul has said. It draws deeper into Yourself for those that know You. And I also pray for those who are here today who have never believed. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would open their hearts and that they would see and that they would respond with faith and repentance and would offer themselves to You completely. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as we sing and reflect in these next few moments that Your Spirit will work in us to refine us and direct us and lead us. We love you. We thank you for your word and for your spirit. and We pray that they would be at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.